Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile, here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking with Bernard Hibbs. Bernard is a member of the Bruderhof, a group of Anabaptist Christians who live in intentional communities where they share everything and own nothing. I recently went to stay with Bernard and his family, and while I was there, he told me all about his countercultural way of life. Can you describe growing up in the Bruderhof? Because you've been here since you were nine, is that right? Yep. I first visited when I was seven. We were on holiday and my parents came by and we came, dropped in in the afternoon and someone showed us around and boy, straight away I was, um, I was hooked. I spent my first afternoon digging for earwigs in a rotten log um, with someone who I'm still good friends with now. So that was my first memory of the Bruderhof. But um, growing up, it's a great place to grow up. I, I loved it and my parents took three years to join. And I remember crying and crying every time that we left because we'd come and stay for a week at a time during sort of half term or something like that. And um, I was always heartbroken to leave because compared to what I had before, I mean, here you always have your friends here. You have a beautiful place to play. It's just uh, yeah, it's a good place for kids. Can you describe what a typical day would be like here at, in a Bruderhof community? Certainly. Um, so our family gets up, well, but it depends when your alarm clock goes, but um, we get up at about six o'clock and have breakfast together. And that's common across all of the Bruderhof communities is that families eat breakfast together. We think it's really important to do that. So I eat breakfast with my kids every morning and then work starts and school starts at 7.30. And then we stop work and have lunch together as a whole community and the kids stop school at 12 and then people go back to work in the afternoon, the kids do non-academic activities in the afternoon till five o'clock, and then everyone stops work, and you know, five to seven is generally a really important time for parents to be with their children, for families to be together, because we think family is so crucial to community. And then often, sort of seven o'clock or a bit later in the evening, we'll have some sort of worship gathering, sometimes we may have some extra work that needs doing in the workshop, and may have to go and attend to that, um, we might do something with the children or maybe something just with the adults or sometimes we'll pull out the barbecue and just have a great time together. And um, what motivates you to live in this way? Because I mean it's clearly very countercultural um, and very different from how, how our society in general is set up. So what, may, what motivates you to stay here and kind of give your life to this? Well, I think the countercultural nature of it is a huge motivator. I mean, Jesus came to bring a completely different way of life. It should look very different than society, and the Bruderhove does look different than society at large. And uh, that's why I'm so happy to, to live it. I mean, who just wants to go along with the flow? We should, uh, we should try and live different lives. Um, you know, and you read the Sermon on the Mount, which really informs the way that we live. And it's a, it's a, radical, it's a radical message that Jesus gives. It's a whole way of life of how we should 
interact with each other, how we should interact with the world, how we should interact with money, you know, all that set out in the Sermon on the Mount. And actually it's a pretty simple guideline for people to follow, for Christians to follow. But then what about the other verses in the Bible that say things like, you know, be in the world but not of the world? Well, I think that's why the, the Bruderhof has never tried to isolate itself. Um, you know, we're very open. We have visitors here every single day of the year. We have groups come and see us. We have individuals who are seeking a life of community. We're no different than any other church. Uh, we're certainly not more isolated than any other church. In fact, I would say we're more open than um, certainly than the average person in that we have all sorts of people coming to visit. Our children interact with society just like other children do. You know, my son plays on the local football team. Um, we do plenty of projects together with the village or other organizations. So we're perfectly open. And you know, as far as mission goes, you know, we have our publishing work we do. We've been publishing books for 100 years. And um, we send people out to speak to churches or to other groups, or theological colleges, or whoever's interested, whoever wants to listen. Or also just take part in other people's churches, visit other churches. So we do um, try and put into practice the Great Commission. Um, but I think you can go out and talk to people about that, but there's also a need to be a church and to live something that people can turn to. And the Bruderhof should be here for people who want a different way of life, who are looking for that, to say that it does work. You know, if you can make those sacrifices, then here is a alternative to society that is worth looking at. Mm. And what kind of sacrifices are we talking about? So if you wanted to become a member of the Bruderhof, what would you have to do? Well... You just have to give up everything. Um, so simple as that, really. Just, uh, give up all your money, or your property, or your possessions, or your future property, or possessions, or things you might earn. Um, give up your desire to be right about everything, or to always get your way, or just do something when you want to. You know, it's to make a community work. There has to be a certain amount of submission to each other. You have to do things that are good for the community, not just for yourself. Um, and so if you can give up that selfishness, then actually life seems to work quite well. Mm -hmm. And if everyone gives that up, you, actually everyone gains from that experience. And so while you have to sacrifice certain things, I feel you get far more back in return. And I guess those things are not just the support of a community, but as you've described, you know, education for your children, support from the hospital, care for the elderly, those kinds of things, those kind of social care services that you'd get out in the world that perhaps aren't at a high enough standard. Yeah, I mean, you get, you get so, many, so many things done for you by the community um, because that's how we believe we should serve each other. You know, if someone's sick, we think they should be visited, they should be cared for by the best doctors, they should get the most medical, best medical care but should also get great spiritual care and have children go and sing to them and whatever it is, it's going to make them better. Uh, that's how we, we feel that we should react to each other as a church. You know, church is there to take care of people. Um, you know, if, uh, if there's a new baby born, we should first of all rejoice with the parents about this new life, but then we should also be there to provide practical help. Um, and we should send our kids to a good school. You know, kids should get a good education. And these are just the small practical things that we can do for each other when you have a shared life like this. Mm. And it's not, I mean, it's not to say that other people can't have that, but it makes it easier. If, you're, if everyone's giving up their own selfishness, it makes it so much easier that those who need help get it. Whereas 
what happens in general society is that the people with the most resources are the ones who get what they need. And there's some people who need a lot more who get almost nothing because they don't have the resources or the social network to obtain those things. In your statement of faith, you say that you want, you want to be people who do not proclaim themselves but Christ. Do you think other Christians outside of Bruderhof communities are falling into that trap of proclaiming themselves? Well, I try not to comment on other people's behaviour. And I mean, I know tons of Christians who are the most self-sacrificial people. Um, I think that part of discipleship is to give up everything for Jesus. And that is much easier for me than for the average person. The community enables me to give up everything. And if I didn't live in the community, I would have to think about myself a lot more. I have to think about what I earn. I have to think about who I become friends with. I have to think about my you know, career prospects, how to care for my children, how to care for my parents. There's so many things there I have to worry about that I end up being self-centered, even if I didn't want to, uh, because how else do you survive? Whereas when you have that support network, it's so much easier to stop, stop thinking about yourself and start thinking about others. Jesus commanded his disciples to go out and spread the good news. Yep. By living in a somewhat in inward-looking community, do you think you're failing to respond to that? Well, I think if the Bruderhof was inward-looking, I think that that could be a failing. Um, you know, it, it's difficult for people to imagine the Bruderhof until they get here and visit. Uh, which people are very welcome to do, it's easy to imagine that religious communities would be sort of insular and, and shut off. And yet, if you come and live here, you'll find out that they're not. It's simply like having church every day instead of just on Sunday or you know maybe midweek. It's like having church every day, but being always part of that church and going out from that church to do things. So I don't have to go out by myself and try and maybe missionize my work colleagues in the place that I work. Um, as a church, we can do those mission tasks, whether it's through publishing, through sending people out, um, through having you know some of our members work as chaplains in local health organisations, um, or to the local police force. And so, there's all sorts of ways that we can reach out as as Christians and spread the news of the gospel. Mm -hmm. But I think one really important one of those things is to live together as a church that is different in society, so that people who are looking for something different, of which there are lots. I think right now, um, they have something to turn to. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if you provide no no actual sort of worked out examples, then people just go along with the status quo because it's too hard to think of something else. And I think it is really hard to start a community like this. Um, lots of people try and generally they last a very short amount of time, which is not to say that people shouldn't try them. It's just is a miracle and it's God's grace when a group of people can actually stick together through thick and thin. You've said that there aren't specifically rules, right? but you are trying to live in a holy way that's, that conforms with a biblical model. Yep. So things like having an affair or gossiping about somebody or, you know, those, those are kind of unwritten rules that you would try to follow. So what happens if somebody does those things? Do you have a kind of disciplinary process? Well, um, not gossiping about people is actually the one written rule that we do have. Um, so we believe that gossip destroys communities incredibly fast and destroys families and workplaces. And I think many, most people have experienced that. And um, so we have an absolute rule against gossip that simply says that if we love each other, we should go to each other directly 
And if we want to reprove each other, we should want to do that because we love that person and want them to be on the right path. And so that's why we should gently go to people and remind them of how they should behave. And actually, if we do that, it works pretty well. And that is biblical as well. I mean, Matthew 18 tells us to do that. Um, not having an affair, well, that's, I think, pretty made pretty clear in the Bible as well. Um, I would say most of the ways that we behave um, or things that might, people might see as, as rules or, yeah, I don't know, conformity to certain types of behavior are actually set out in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Or we should be able to find them there. But you can have a desire to want to live a certain way, but the, the inevitability is that people are fallen beings, oh, yeah. aren't they? And people do sin and people do do horrible things to each other. Right. So what do you do in instances uh, when that happens? And the Bruderhof is the worst, by the way. It's like it's... <laughs> It's not a collection of saints, it's a collection of sinners who decide to live in community together. So um, plenty of people have problems. Well, if someone's willing to see that they were wrong, very simply, they can be forgiven. You know, and we have a pastoral team, people can go, confess their wrongdoings, and start again. It can be as simple as that. Um, We do practice church discipline, um, so that if, if someone has lived in sin for a long time and then wants it to you know, restart, almost like a, like a re-baptism. So baptism, we believe in believer's baptism, that at baptism your sins are washed away. And many times in our lives we realize that we've actually, you know, departed from the way of Christ and we could have lived better. And we want a new start and church discipline for us is the way that can be obtained. That I can declare to the church, you know, I want my life to be new, that I can also be given the time so people, you know, they might be in their, like a time of silence. And many people actually recognize the benefit of that. People go on silent retreats. Um, it's often part of the monastic tradition. Um, that we have time of quiet so that we can actually stand before God, that we can renew our relationship to him, then renew our relationship to the church and to our brothers and sisters. And that then is a time of great rejoicing when someone has turned around. And we're told in the Bible that, you know, the angels in heaven rejoice when a sinner repents and so we believe very much in repentance and you know there really are um yeah like i said the root of hope is full of fallen people yet it's also full of forgiveness and we believe that everyone can be forgiven but what about the people who don't want to be forgiven or aren't seeking a way back so you know the bible also talks about throwing people out of the community and not having anything else anything to do with them you know if they continue to sin right would yeah. that be something you'd do? Yeah, Paul's, Paul's words on that are pretty, are pretty clear and pretty sharp. Um, if someone persists in behavior that doesn't fit into the church, then, of course, at some point there would have to be a separation. Um, we would try everything to try and make it that that person would realize. We would give them time. We would do whatever it takes that they would see um, that their behavior is not fitting for a disciple and uh but eventually if someone persists like that then yes eventually we'd ask them to leave um which is probably similar to most churches it's not um you know there has to be a certain you can't just come here and do whatever you want to and um but we try and do it in the in the gentlest way possible that people are we always want people to be restored Mm -hmm. and so it's important it's always done with love and with respect we would help someone get set up outside of the community and always hope that they would return to the community so we don't excommunicate people there's no there's nothing you can do that will sort of shut you out of the brood of for life people are welcome back and many people have left the community and come back um that is a fairly common thing how would you feel if one of your children decided to leave um 
Well, I mean, it's, it's one of those difficult questions, I think, especially when it comes down to your own children, because obviously I've dedicated my life to something that I think is worthwhile. I want them to find something worthwhile for their lives. And yet, you know, my prayer with my wife together each day as we pray for our children is that they learn to follow Christ, not that they become members of the Bruderhof. Because the Bruderhof in itself is um, it's something that's here today, and for all we know, it will be gone tomorrow. It's, uh, it's a way of life, it's a specific expression of the gospel, um, and yet, is it meant to last for all of eternity? No, it's not going to do that. And so, the most important thing is we dedicate our lives to Christ and learn to follow him alone. And if my children could find ways to do that outside the Broodhouse, that's fantastic. I hope they do. You and your family have lived in several different Broodhouse communities around the world, as I understand it. Yep. But those haven't necessarily been personal choices, so you haven't kind of said, oh, let's go and try the American community, right. let's go and try the German community. That must be quite difficult, especially with your mother and father being here. Can you just tell me a bit about that? Yeah, well, moving is one of these things where um, there's probably not many people who actually like moving, unless they maybe really hate where they live at the moment. <laughs> but uh, we have to move around. We have to... Um, people's skills are needed in different places. Um, and we should, like you know, like you said, we should be willing to move for the sake of Christ. It should be you know, one of those things that we give up is my ability to say, like, no, I have to live here, I have to live in England, or I have to live in America, uh, to be, you know, we want to be used by the church, and that is one of the things that we can do. You know, Christians have had a long history of sending people on mission. Um, and we talked about the Great Commission. It's, um, you know, people have taken on far bigger sacrifices than moving on one Bruderhof to another. The great thing is that I always know that my parents are going to be looked after. You know, it's, it's, it's not just like abandoning them in an old folks' home. They've got brothers and sisters here that they also dedicated their lives to who will take care of them probably better than I do. And so I know they're always assured of that care. Um, and we never try to sort of, you know, pull apart families unnecessarily. And it's not, I mean, people visit the whole time. People still communicate between our communities. Um, many families outside of the community have that sort of separation. And... Uh, it does happen, but it happens in a way that at least older people are careful. You may have heard about the recent collapse of the Jesus Army. You yes. that story? Yeah, I did. Yep. What do you think went wrong with that, with, with the Jesus Army, and how can Bruderhof avoid falling into those pitfalls? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't, I don't really want to comment on, on record about someone else's community, mm -hmm. because I know there was many faithful people in the Jesus Army. We have some close friends who are part of the Jesus Army who are devastated uh, by the fact that their community has essentially fallen apart. And my hope for the Jesus Army is that they really, um, you know, come back to what they had at the beginning, that desire to give up everything for Christ, just like us. And that's where we really share, you know, there are those Jesus Army communities where they lived in full community of goods. It's a very, it's quite a rare thing to find. Um, and that they find a way to continue that way of life despite the difficulties mm -hmm. they have. I actually don't know a huge amount about them sort of as a structure or as a church. Um, I just know that they ran into uh, difficulties. And like I was saying earlier, it is really hard. You know, there are some things that are hard about living in community. And, um, but they did last, you know, quite a few years. What sort of safeguards have you put in place? So for example, the Jesus Army, I think one of the one of the big things that happened which caused their collapse was um, abuse, so abuse towards yep. children, sexual abuse. 
Have you guys got here a structure where you have safeguarding inbuilt into what you do? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's very important that children in a community like this are safeguarded. We're very careful about who we allow to come and stay, who is allowed access to children. Um, and everyone who works with children on the Bruderhof is trained. There's a policy on safeguarding. There's a, a video training that's delivered across all of our communities. Um, plus our teachers in the UK undergo the mandated training because we are a registered school. Um, so there is a lot of focus on that. And the Bruderhof is, you know, puts children first and taking care of this aspect should be, you know, our highest, you know, the highest calling really is to protect children. Um, it's also made, it's also very, very clear to all members that if a member commits a crime, um, let's say, you know, abuses a child, that would be reported um, to authorities and um, it would be dealt with, it would be a proper investigation. Um, you know, just because you are a member of a church that believes in forgiveness doesn't mean you can commit crimes as a member and get away with them. Mm -hmm. You know, we believe that there is a need for the law and people who break the law need to face that justice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we also, because of the way, because of the level of trust in our communities, if someone, if someone was known to have acted inappropriately towards a child, we wouldn't, there's very, very little chance they'd actually be able to live on one of our communities. What's the best and worst part of living in a community like this? I mean, from, a, from an outward point of view, the Bruderhof is just a really fun place to live. It's, uh, people always imagine that living in a religious community would somehow be sort of miserable um, or dull or something, but it's not. It's exciting. It's fun. It's, uh, I have great times with my children. I have great times with my friends. We celebrate a lot as a community. We have barbecues and we have pig roasts and we have ice cream parties um, and just have a good time together. You know, there's nothing in the gospel to say that we should go around with long faces. Um, the best bit from a more serious point of view is that it enables me to be a disciple. You know, I really am free to serve Jesus. I don't have to worry about so many things that I would have to worry about if I lived a normal way of life. Um, it's a great place to raise children. It's really easy for me to bring up children in the faith that I believe in. Um, children just naturally, because they have so many positive role models around them, they, they naturally grow up that way. Um, you know, children, I never have to try and convince my children to believe in Jesus. They do it naturally. <clears throat> now, of course, they'll become teenagers one day and that will probably all go out the window. Um, worst bit of the brood of hope? <laughs> There's got to be some bad bits somewhere. I mean, I think it's, it's the things that are annoying are just having to get on with people you wouldn't necessarily get on with. You know, people are different. We have different cultures, loads of different ways of thinking about things. We have some people who just are very, you know, very different than me. And I have to learn to get on with them. I have to learn to understand sometimes the background they came from, maybe how they grew up, maybe the culture they grew up in. That can be a challenge. Um, learning to communicate with people um, and then just learning to give up, you know, give up things that even if, even if my ideas are right, doesn't necessarily make it that my ideas always have to have happen. And I guess that can be some of those good things that we think, oh, this would be so good if the community would do this or that. And I can't necessarily, you know, force my opinion onto everyone. Giving up money and possessions, that's the easy bit. 
Everyone should do that. If everyone start with that, then they could work on the more difficult, intangibles. The yeah, the ego bit. Those are, those are a lot harder than the money. How do you respond to people who describe the Bruderhof as a cult? Well, almost all people who describe the Bruderhof as a cult are either disgruntled for some specific reason. So it's simply a great um, sort of label to stick on because obviously it's hurtful to be called a cult. Or people who are completely ignorant of the Bruderhof and never come to visit. And... I know of very few people who have actually come to visit who still think the Bruderhof is a cult. And those people will generally regard any form of organized religion as a cult. But if you actually look what a, you know, what a cult is, and there's been lots in the media recently about um, this funny named cult with an N and an X in it in, in America, Nexime, I don't know how you say it, you know, <clears throat> these are abusive. There's money involved, almost always. Uh, so you've got to pay to be part of it. Whereas we take, you know, people come and join who have no money. And we're still happy for them to come and join. Um, so, you know, we've taken, people have come and become members where, looked at from a financial point of view, we know there's only going to be money going towards that person. They're never going to be a financially productive part of our community, which I don't think any cult or commercial organization would find acceptable. But for us, because we're a church, we think everyone deserves that and so we're happy to um, have people become members who maybe aren't that able to you know financially support the community you know essentially the Bruderhof is a church that takes certain aspects of the New Testament especially very very seriously and that makes us appear different but um, if you compare us to sort of genuine cults like Moonies, Scientologists, the Raelians, uh, Universal Medicine um, no, we're, we're a far cry away from that. It's interesting, Ben, because you sort of go in and out of the community, you go into London quite a bit, and, mm -hmm. and, and you, you're living here. So you must have quite an interesting perception of what, this, what society in general looks like, and also what the UK church looks like to some extent. Sure. What advice would you have for, for Christians out there? Do you have a message for them? Well, advising people is always dangerous. Um, <laughs> And I, I know so many Christians who are doing really worthwhile projects and we support a lot of those projects like street pastors, and food bank and things like that. Um, Cinnamon Network, we're big, big supporters of. And it's great those projects are happening, which continue, you know, making the, by, making the gospel known in practical ways, I think is really, is really important. I would say, though, that it is a time where people are disgruntled with politics people are starting to realize that the individualism that capitalism has brought to our society is unhealthy. Um, you know, there's a lot of people trying to push back against that. And where are those people going to go? You know, this would be a great time for the church to say, here we are, here's an example of how you could live. You know, our churches should be havens for people who want to turn away from the problems in our society um, and, you know, find a new way of life. And I would say my encouragement, this is for the Bruderhof and for other churches, let's be places where people can turn to, where people can find hope, where people can find healing, um, and people can find a sense of belonging. Premier Christianity magazine, in this month's issue. Former Blue Peter presenter Simon Thomas had it all. A successful TV career, a loving family, and a strong faith. But when his wife died, his world fell apart. In the latest issue, Simon talks candidly about grief, unanswered prayer, and why death is not the end. 
Plus, R.T. Kendall writes on the silent divorce between word and spirit. Nick Page tells us why questioning the Bible is a biblical thing to do. And the best-selling Christian author, Philip Yancey, shares his insights on the state of the global church. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. World-class Bible teachers, including Albert Moeller and Alistair Begg, are coming to London. Ligonier Ministries' first ever UK conference is taking place this September and you can go free. You'll get two tickets worth £118 completely free of charge when you subscribe to Premier Christianity magazine. Subscribe now and get your free tickets to the Light of the World conference at premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Megan Cornwell. This is the show where we delve into a person's life, faith and ministry. It's brought to you in association with the UK's leading Christian magazine, Premier Christianity. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, head to our website, premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Today on The Profile, I'm speaking with the Bishop of Burnley, Bishop Philip North. He's an Anglican clergyman who has been outspoken about the church's inadequate response to poverty and inequality, accusing his denomination of abandoning the poorest areas. He recently made the case for a greater church presence on urban estates. Bishop Philip, welcome to the show. Thank you for your welcome, Megan. You were born in London. Tell me about life growing up. What are your earliest memories of faith? It was, I was brought up in, really, in, um, in my father was quite a hardcore atheist. My mother had a slightly ambiguous relationship with the church. Um, they split up when I was seven or eight years old. So what brought me to church is, it's pretty shameful truth. I'm afraid it was the money. I've, when I was about nine or ten years old, I found out that the choir boys in the local church choir got paid significant amounts of money for singing in a choir, particularly at weddings. And that drew me into the life of a, quite a vibrant, busy um, local church in a sort of suburban area of London. Um, and it, but it wasn't really till my late teens when a curate came along who was really able to communicate the Christian faith to young people, you know, to listen to our questions and to our, answer them in relevant and engaging and challenging ways. Um, and, you know, he taught me that the Christian faith wasn't a great big behaviour management plan, which I thought, nor is it a set of rather dry, dusty doctrines. It's about living your life in relationship with Jesus, who, by virtue of his dying and rising, is still alive so that we can know him as a friend. And everything fell into place, really, because of his teaching. So I'd been going to church quite a long time before I became became a Christian. And that was really that kind of time when I started to explore ordination as well. That's what I was just about to say. So when did you realise that you were called to the priesthood? It was, it was pretty much, you know, it was the example of that priest, actually. You know, he was so funny and so engaging and so compelling in the way he taught about the faith. And he just seemed to be living a, an attractive, enjoyable life. And I think he was quite a significant role model. And so I d- went off and did a degree. And then I went and spent a year working in a really run-down estate on the edge of Sunderland. So, you know, coming from the London suburbs, I suddenly found myself in this wholly different culture in order to explore the 
vocation and saw the church working in a way I'd never seen before, actually. So it wasn't just a kind of, you know, another thing in people's lives. It was right at the very heart of this community, very rooted, down-to-earth, incarnational ministry. You know, priests who got everywhere, who met people's needs in the most immediate way. Church really reaching out to young people and making a difference to young people's lives. And the church really making a stand for justice at a time when, you know, that estate was going through a particularly tough time, when industry was closing down, you know, really giving voice to the poor. Is that where you first got inspired? Because I know that you're, um, you have been a particular advocate for the poor. And so was that your first experience of real poverty? And is that where your drive to, to, to be that voice for the poorer ha- has come from? Yes, it was that experience. It's also um, uh, the, a, a report the Church of England wrote some years ago now called Faith in the City which made a very direct appeal to young adults to commit their lives to urban mission and ministry. And so, you know, I was just beginning to think, what's God calling me to do? And so the vocation wasn't just to be a priest. It was actually to be a priest in in inner urban and outer estate areas. That was very much uh, the sense of call that I had. Just aware of the transformative impact that the gospel can make on people's lives. And you've talked in the past, haven't you, about priests being called to London and called to those areas that are a bit flashier and a bit more exciting. Do you feel that the church is doing enough to encourage people priests to go to the margins, go to the, the outer areas that, that aren't so exciting. I'm beginning to see a change. Um, Adrian Newman, who was the Bishop of Stepney, wrote a, a really seminal uh, report called So Yesterday about why urban ministry had gone to, dropped down the church's agenda. And he said one issue was about the triumph of the growth agenda, because there's always a temptation if you're really wanting to grow a church to go what some people will call the low-hanging fruit. And what they mean by the low-hanging fruit is people like us. And it seems to me when you look at the Gospels, where does Jesus go for it is most certainly not the low-hanging fruit. He goes to the margins and to the edges and to the poor and to the forgotten and to the sinful. He put, he pushes ministry right to the margins. And that's where this extraordinary transform, transformative movement of renewal came from. The church, I think, has been in danger of actually walking away from those poorest areas. And, you know, clergy deployment is one way of expressing that. You know, lots of people very happy to plant new congregations inside zones one and two, where, you know, you can apparently grow a church fairly easily. But who is there on the left-behind towns in the north? Who is there on the big outer, uh, outer urban estates where ministry is, is, is more, more enjoyable, actually, but perhaps rather less fashionable? Mm. You said at the General Synod in 2016, we are all leaders of a church who have taken a preferential option for the rich. What did you mean by that? And have you seen anything change since, since you made that speech? What I, I meant at that time was, was what I was seeing was the slow drip drip abandonment of particularly the outer estates. Now, I don't think anyone decided to do that. I don't think that was strategy. It's just that in straightened times, when money is hard, when there's big issues around clergy deployment, when decisions are being made by all sorts of people at all sorts of different levels, it's very easy to forget the estates' churches. And very often on estates, other denominations have always left behind. So you know, we've identified fairly easily 330 large social housing estates in this country where there is no Christian presence. Now, that for me is appallingly bad news. You know, I don't think, you know, where, look where Jesus goes. A church that abandons the poor has simply abandoned God. A church that abandons the poor is just not the God of Jesus Christ. If we're serious about renewal, 
we need to do what Jesus did and begin with those poorer areas. And so that's what I meant by that preferential option for the rich. Um, and have I seen change? I've begun to. Certainly the language is different. Certainly lots of dioceses are doing very interesting things around returning to estates. There's quite a lot of investment back in estates through the Strategic Development Fund and other income sources. Um, lots of lip service paid. I'm not yet seeing a revolution. Mm. I think one interesting thing here is, is in the area of uh, church planting. Um, it's... I was at a conference last week where a speaker was saying that it's disappointing how church planting hasn't really taken off in the West and Western Europe, where it has taken off in the majority world. Now, it seems to me there's a very obvious reason for that. In the West and Western Europe, we're starting our church planting strategies with the rich and wealthier areas. In the majority world, they're starting with the poor. You know, perhaps if we start with the poor, as Jesus did, God may begin to honour us. Mm. And when you talk about a revolution, what do you think that would look like in terms of changing the, the way people think, the way Christians think, the way the priests are deployed, like you're saying? What, what does that revolution look like? I mean, it, what it means is that we put poorer communities first rather than putting them last. Mm -hmm. What it means is that we hear the voices of deprived and lower income communities in, in the life of the church. What it means is that our very best leaders are going to our poorest parishes. What it means is that our evangelistic resources and strategies are being tailored to the needs of poorer communities. Mm -hmm. Why? Because when we do that, everybody will catch on. You know, a leader formed in an urban parish can lead anywhere. A resource developed in an urban area will work anywhere. A church that is seen to be alongside the poor is one that will recapture the, the nation's imagination. Mm -hmm. And it's just true of every single, you know, I can't find a single renewal movement as I trawl all the pages of church history, which has not done exactly that. You know, the Oxford movement of which I'm a part is an example of that. You know, it started off blowing the dust off the tomes of the fathers in libraries in Oxford. But within just a few years... Uh, their followers are out on the streets serving cholera victims in London and Plymouth. Renewal is authenticated when we hear the cry of the poor mm -hmm. and proclaim good news to the poor. It's interesting because this week a British attitude survey showed that there's further decline in Christianity in the UK and growing atheism. How do you think the church should respond to this news? In the way I've been saying, actually, by recommitting ourselves mm -hmm. to ministry to everyone, especially to poorer people. Um, I think also we need to think very carefully about the, the, the nature of our proclamation, you know, what is it, you know, what does Jesus do? He listens, first of all, he hears, he understands people's needs, and he speaks good news into that context. I think what we often do is we assume that the gospel is the kind of bite-sized pick-up-and-drop message that you just take anywhere. And we, 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 we sort of hammer out trite phrases and it's just not connecting with people anymore. You know, whether it's areas of poverty or anywhere else in the nation, we've got to be really tuned in to what the culture is saying to us and demonstrate by our lives and by our words how uh, Jesus speaks into that. I think part of the social attitude survey is actually partly be people being more honest. You know, a collapse of, a collapse of um, the old Christendom model which perhaps creates opportunities for us, actually, because if people are clearing away some of the baggage of the past, it gives us the chance to speak the gospel with ever greater freshness. Um, but I think that must be really rooted in listening and understanding the context in which we're said. And talking about context, in your own diocese and in your own ministry, what has, what has been the best and the worst days so far? Um, the best days are... Ordinary days when I'm getting round the parishes and especially the schools of the diocese. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, that we can look at statistics like the Social Attitudes Survey and beat ourselves up. Whereas if you ask me, the scope, the imagination of ministry in local churches today 
is more creative than it's ever been. And the work ethic of priests and church leaders is stronger than it's ever been. If I worry about one thing about our clergy in Blackburn Diocese, it's about, it's about um, workload and workaholism. You know, we have some fabulously gifted churches out there, really, really meeting needs. And so I love the days when I just spend time in parishes, talking to their clergy and lay leaders and going to schools. We've got a fabulous family of church schools in Blackburn um, and talk to children about the faith. Uh, those are my favourite days, just very rooted ones, encouraging people in local ministry. You know, there's a priest in Fleetwood, for example, who the hospital in the centre of town has just was, went, was closed for years and he's bought it. He's gathered together a group of local business people. They've bought a hospital in order to meet to the best they can the needs of the many vulnerable adults and homeless people who end up in Fleetwood. It's just a fabulous piece of work. There is such imagination and creativity going on out there. And in the Church of England, there's this wonderful thing where the church commissioners have decided to invest in mission, to use historic asset. You know, what's the point in sitting on billions of quid and no one's going to church anymore? Let's spend it in, on interesting ministry. And again, that's opened up some really interesting work. So in Blackburn, for example, we've started a project to train up urban leaders, so people from unlikely backgrounds with less formal education, sending them out back to uh, their communities, confident in the gospel. Mm -hmm. There's another project where we have Catholics and Evangelicals working together to a new church life in the centre of Preston. So there's some really interesting and imaginative stuff going on in the local church. Uh, Richard Charters used to say, the church is incredible nationally, but credible locally. And he's so right. There's such a contrast between what's going on on the streets and what we hear in the headlines. What about your worst day? Oh, my worst day is probably something you're going to come on to, which is to do with uh, the encounter I had um, when I was appointed diocese of she uh, to be Bishop of Sheffield and uh, things went wrong. That was certainly my darkest time as a bishop. Can you describe exactly what happened? You know, what happened was uh, I was offered the post of Bishop of Sheffield. Um, I take a traditionist position in the Church of England. Um, I, I don't, you know, the Church of England for me is part of the whole wide Catholic Church of God. And this has limits to what it can, decisions it can take unilaterally. Um, and, you know, I have concerns over women's ordination about what it does to the unity of the church. I honour hugely the ministry of individual women. I work very closely with the women clergy in our diocese, um, uh, point them to posts, encourage their ministry as, you know, as much in exactly the same way as a male priest. I just don't draw any distinction. But on an ecumenical level, I have some problems with what that has done to, to unity within the church. Mm. Um, I was appointed to Diocese of Sheffield. I was very, very clear about what I thought about that but to many of the clergy in that diocese the position I held on that my theological conscience on that was not acceptable to them mm -hmm. and uh, people started to um, lobby from externally as well from outside the diocese and the position reached the point where it's clear that my going to that diocese would have brought uh, more division than unity and the right thing was to withdraw mm -hmm. but of course the, the the process running up to that was a very difficult time. Mm -hmm. And you talked about personal attacks at that time were people sending you hurtful emails and messages there was a lot of you know quite aggressive letter writing there was a lot, lot of quite unpleasant emails stuff being posted on the social media and it just felt very personal mm. um and and that's what made it a very very difficult space to be in mm. and you know in in many ways i see see both sides of the debate actually you know it's it's uh uh, the clergy in Sheffield Diocese weren't expecting a traditionist bishop, so so I wouldn't in any way, shape or form ever want to criticise them. But in the heat of battle, people say things and do things which um, they may later judge unwise, and I think there's some of that going on. Mm. 
did did they ever apologize those people who did were you able to sort of Reconcile. It's interesting, you know, a large number of people from that diocese have been in touch in various ways. I hold no grudges against anyone for that. Mm. Um, uh, bishop Pete, the, the wonderful Bishop of Sheffield, has invited me back to the diocese to lead uh, a day on prayer. And I'm really looking forward to going. I still have many friends in that diocese. And he has all my prayers as uh, the person seeing it, seeing that diocese ahead. Mm-hmm. And Bishop Philip, the Church of England talks a lot about mutual flourishing and disagreeing well. But it seems in your situation, in that particular example, there was little space for a dissenting view. Were you disappointed with that response? I think people, when they, you know, when people voted through the bishop, the House of Bishops Declaration and agreed the five guiding principles, I wondered to what extent they thought through what mutual flourishing really meant. And I think that's a process that's still ongoing. There's a lot of work being done now about the theology of mutual flourishing. And what does it really mean? to disagree with somebody quite fundamentally on a matter of conscience, but to want their flourishing. Mm. What what does it mean for a church to have leaders who hold radically different views? And these are very important issues, not, you know, on on a number of things that divide us and things where I think we need to do a a great deal more work. What are the boundaries within which people with different positions held in good conscience can be together and travel together as one church. seems to me we have a wonderful opportunity to model something to the nation because what are we seeing all around us? We're seeing a nation that's tearing itself to pieces over disagreement about future political direction, about who we are in the world, about Brexit and so on. The church has the chance to model what it means to hold together a wide range of views and yet be committed to travelling forward together in love. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the strength of mutual flourishing. Um, And there's a a lot of thinking and work being done about that. And I really hope that as we come perhaps to other debates in the future, we can can be committed to one another. That actually, you know, Jesus prays, may they be one that the world might believe. Mm -hmm. He wants us to be one family. And that seems integral to our mission. But that must be difficult if you hold to very strong beliefs that you see in the Bible. Um, and you see people within your denomination with a very different view. I mean, there would be people that would say that the Church of England has actually lost its way on certain issues. What would you say to that? I don't think the Church of England has lost its way on certain issues. I think I think the Church of England is quite good at debating things honestly. Um, I think people just need to be clear about where they stand, but willing to listen to the other person. You know, I don't know if it, those conversations are very interesting ones where you try actually to express the views of another person. So I took a more progressive view on an issue. I try and voice the traditional conservative line. And when people do that, actually, relationships can often trump those conscience issues. Um, but what about externally for people who are wondering, well, what is the truth? What, you know, what, what does the church say about same-sex marriage? What does the church say about, about you know, relationships between men and women? If you've got conflicting views within the church outsiders will be confused about what the truth is surely the, the church is the church of england is very clear about about its teaching on marriage that it's between a man and a woman for life um there's no change to that um i know people are worried about that being so but i can't see any prospect in the immediate future of change but at the same time you know we live in a culture which is asking itself big issues around identity and what it means to be human and what it means to be a sexual person and it would be wrong for the church not to engage scripturally with those issues. Mm-hmm. And actually that process of engagement throws up debate. Mm-hmm. But when in church history has that not been the case? You know, look at the, if we look at the book of, the, of Acts and see the intense debates that were going on there around in some ways the same way. How, you know, to what extent does our tradition 
um, can, is, is it meeting the needs of a changing culture? You see that in the debate about food. You see that debate about circumcision. Um, so this is just a constant process in which we bring into dialogue the gospel of Jesus Christ with a changing human culture. And in terms of your views on women's ordination, the the Archbishop of York retires next year and two female bishops are being reported as strong favourites to replace him. Will you be attending the consecration of a female archbishop if that were to be the case? Yes, Yes, I will. I've attended a number of consecrations of women bishops and I can do that because of the strength of the provisions that were put in place. Mm -hmm. So when, when women bishops were voted through in the Church of England, there was a network of bishops set up Um, to minister to parishes who felt in conscience unable to accept that. And because those processes are robust, we can be together for things like that. And it's not uncommon for traditions bishops to attend the consecrations of women and to be there to pray for them and to commit themselves to working in partnership in the gospel. It's very important that everyone pushes conscience as far as they can in these issues and that we're committed to being together as one family. I would, though, very much hope that whoever is the new archbishop would be very, very strongly in favour of those provisions remaining in place and will be a voice for traditionists in the church as well as for um, for other people. Mm-hmm. And moving on to a slightly different issue now, um, Bishop Philip, you joined the Company of Mission Priests in 1997, which is a group of male priests who've decided not to marry but rather to devote themselves to the church. What led you to make that decision? Um, it was the example of, uh, Company of Mission Priests, we often call it CMP, it's an example of, the, of their ministry in urban areas, particularly in the north of England. This is a a model of ministry that I just found very, very compelling. Priests who were living to a rule around prayer, around marriage, around simplicity of life, in order to free themselves up for the ministry of the church in urban areas. And sometimes in areas where, you know, parishes that families may not feel um, so able to go. And there's a particular model of really down-to-earth relational ministry. It's strongly Eucharistic, it's confidently Catholic, but it's absolutely characterised by deep love for everybody in a community. And you know, there's a, the warden of the company mission priest, a man called Beresford Skelton, just absolutely role models it, working in a really tough parish in Sunderland. But everybody in that community knows him. He has time for everybody. There's no limit to the ministry. And that, it, I just found that so compelling. Um, and, and you know, if you're if you're a single priest, if you feel a call to celibacy, it's important to have a support network around you. And it's it's a it's a close knit family CMP and and a group where I found a great deal of. Um, what gives me identity as a priest. It's also inspired by one of the most remarkable saints, a man called Vincent de Paul, who renewed the French church of the 17th century by focusing on the margins and on the poor. And his example as patron is is a very, very powerful one. With your traditionalist views and commitment to celibacy, it strikes me as interesting that you've actually never taken up the opportunity to join the Catholic Church. Have you ever considered that? I've reflected on it. I think all Anglo-Catholics reflect on it from time to time, especially, you know, when change is being considered in the Church of England, when you're wondering about your own future. Um, and uh, it's vocational, isn't it? You know, you need you need to feel that God is calling you. It's not enough to say, I'm cross for the Church of England, I'm going to leave and join somebody else. You've got to feel a strong sense of call to become a Roman Catholic. And I've not yet felt that. Mm-hmm. So so it, the Catholic tradition, the Church of England, is a very strong and compelling and and and. and historic one I feel very much an Anglican you know that may change in the future who knows but uh, that's why I feel called to serve God now. Do you think Bishop Philip that the global Anglican communion will be able to maintain unity in the face of entrenched differences? I desperately hope it will Um, it's quite hard at the moment to see how 
And I suspect we'll need to think of different structures for engaging together because, uh, you know, there's, there's one set of churches who's very, very determined to go in one particular direction about marriage and the meaning of marriage. And there's many who I don't think will be able to go on that journey. So it's quite hard to see now how the current institutions of unity will survive some of these debates. Mm -hmm. But I hope that we can find new ways of expressing a common Anglican identity and of being committed to one another through prayer in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I think the Lambeth Conference will be a very, very interesting one. I really hope that bishops from all around the world come to that. I hope that those who take conservative views as well as those who take progressive views will be able to gather together and meet and share in a very honest way. Um, and it's the same thing, isn't it? It's about modelling unity being one family as far as that's possible, that the world might believe. The world does not need ever more fractured churches in these Christians speaking up with one voice about the Lordship of Christ. And mm -hmm. um, finally, what are your priorities in your diocese in the coming months? In, we've, we've got in the Diocese of Blackburn at the moment a very big push on growing disciples and on discipleship generally. So we're really encouraging our parishes to help people, you know, to, to remind them of the core heart of the gospel, to uh, grow in the life of prayer, to be attentive to the scriptures and to grow in their own personal individual faiths. So discipleship is quite a, quite a big push for us at the moment at Blackburn. Um, and also the particular area I look after in the diocese is around, is around leadership and vocation. So we need a, you know, we need a big push on on uh, finding, raising up, particularly the clergy of the future. Um, we're very committed in Blackburn to uh, growing the church rather than to managing decline. And that takes quite a risk, actually. So we're asking people to think a lot about generosity, about vocation, so that actually we can be a confident presence in, in Lancashire. And we've also got quite, we're developing quite an ambitious uh, strategy for planting churches and for encouraging the local church to start new congregations um, within their own areas, but also to look at uh, resourcing parishes, churches around the diocese that can support other parishes, particularly in ministry to young people. Uh, we've got in Blackburn the youngest congregations in the country, but we lose 11-year-olds, like there's no tomorrow. So we've got to really think about um, what we need to put in place to engage those particularly teenage uh, boys and girls with the good news of Jesus Christ. So those are really our priorities looking forward. It's a great diocese to be in. There's a lot of energy and a lot of life. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Bishop Philip. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for joining us on The Profile today. I hope you enjoyed both of those interviews with Bernard Hibbs from the Bruderhof and Philip North, Bishop of Burnley. If you would like to find out more about the Bruderhof, I spent 48 hours with Bernard and his family and wrote about my experiences in the latest issue of Premier Christianity magazine. You can get a free copy of the magazine at premierchristianity.com forward 